Abutai, please close the doors. Our topic this evening, responding to tragedy, has to be understood on two levels. First of all, of course, we want to understand how to respond to tragedy on a national level, which is exactly how should an entire nation respond to a crisis of a hurban. As well, we should try to think of our topic on an individual level. That is, how should an individual respond to a personal tragedy? It's rare that a person can walk through life without responding, without experiencing, and thereby having to respond to some tragedy that occurs in life. There are a whole slew of issues that one can speak about, whether it's illness, whether it's business crisis which devastates the family. On an individual level, a person is going to have to deal with tragedy on one level or another, at one point or other. And we want to try to think about what are the biblical sources that teach us how one should respond to tragedy on a national level as well as on an individual level. Of course, as a people, we have known tragedy as no other nation. And that's not simply an exaggeration, nor is it a narrowly chauvinistic statement. Anybody that knows anything about the history of the world or knows the history of the Jewish people knows that that statement is not an exaggeration. The list of national tragedies that we have experienced is close to endless. But to give some sense as to what we mean by national tragedy, we have provided, past occasions, a list of seven distinct national tragedies that have taken place throughout Jewish history. What's the first of the national tragedies that are stricken the Jewish people? Let's go back to the beginning of Jewish history, which is about 3,300 years ago. We're now at the year, let's say, Torah is given in the year 1280 before the Common Era. So let's go. We go from the 12th century to the 11th century before the Common Era. 10th century, national tragedies? No. King David reigns from the year 1960. He engages in battle and is extraordinarily successful. King Solomon. No era of peace and harmony has been for the Jewish people since King Solomon. Ends his reign in 922. National tragedy? We have a crisis. A mini, a mini crisis, a mini tragedy. 922, you have a split between the ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. Striking, sad, there is military confrontation, there are Jews killing each other. But I won't call that a national tragedy. 1047 before the Common Era, we have the destruction of the city of Afek, at which point the Mishkan was taken in captivity. That's correct, that's true, that's 1047 before the Common Era. However, it didn't affect masses of Jewish people. We have to define as we go along, what do we call a national tragedy? What's a national tragedy? And of course, we may have some disagreement as to how to define national tragedy. But in the situation of Afek, the Jews quickly recovered from that incident of the Mishkan. If you know the narrative in the book of Shemuel, Perek Dal, Perekem, we find that the Mishkan is quickly re retaken, coming back by itself, and soon after King David takes over, and we have some semblance of, of normalcy, of peace and harmony. So we have to define, as we go along, national tragedy. No national tragedies. We've had military confrontation. We had a 100-year war with Syria up north. Very difficult, very demoralizing, no doubt. But we would not call it a national tragedy, 
There was no geographic dislocation, which is part and parcel of national tragedy. So we'll see how to explain that as we go along. The first overwhelming tragedy that one has to speak about is found in the book of Melachim Bet. We look at chapter 17. What happens over here? In the twelfth year of the reign of Ahaz, Melech Yudah, who was the king of Israel, whose name was Shea ben Elah, in the, in the city of Samaria, he ruled for nine years. He was evil in the eyes of God. And of course, people that are evil in the eyes of God have to be punished. One of the most primary biblical lessons I want us to learn that evil cannot go unpunished. Evil has to be punished. Clear message that emerges from any reading of the Tanakh itself. But he wasn't that evil. He wasn't that evil as evil as before him. But in his day, the extraordinarily powerful king, Shalman Esed V over Assyria, he rises against him. But he Hoshea becomes a vassal, a servant to Shalman Esed, but nobody resisted Shalman Esed in those days. One of the most powerful of kings of the entire ancient period. And he gave him tribute. Better to be red than dead is what he's saying over here. I'll pay you anything. I don't mind what you impose upon me, but I want to be your vassal, your servant. So says Hoshea ben Elah. What happens? Hoshea ben Elah is not comfortable with that arrangement. And the king of Ashur finds Hoshea ben Elah rebelling, Keshed, rebelling against him. He starts, Hoshea ben Elah contracts an agreement with Egypt, through Mitzrayim. And then at a certain point he says, the power of Egypt and the power of Hoshea ben Elah will defeat the power of Shaman Eset. It's amazing how military miscalculations can cause such extraordinary destruction. Aside for a moment, parenthetical remark, right now Israel itself is in a military crisis. You may call it a war. And right now Sharon has to decide this issue. Shall I engage in a military confrontation with the Palestinians? Call it a war. It is a war. Declare war against them. Go in full force against them. Suffer my losses of 300 to 500 soldiers, young men, young Jews fighting, and wipe out the problem. What's his calculations? Is it worth the 500 people that are guaranteed to die? Yes, there'll be three or 4,000 Palestinians, and then what will, we, what will we have achieved? Be internationally isolated, perhaps? Maybe at that point in time, the international world will be against us? We're afraid of Iran and Iraq coming out against us? That's all that is now on the shoulders of Sharon. What's the right decision? It's a military, political, ideological decision that he has to make at this point in time. One cannot envy him. He cannot be pushed by inappropriate concerns either. A settler, Mithnahel, is shot on the roadway. A Jew dies. A baby dies. It's a tragedy of unending proportions for the family for Am Yisrael. But do you declare war and possibly sacrifice another three, four, five hundred thousand people in that war. And what do you gain? Are you going to gain peace? Then maybe yes, declare war. But will you gain peace? You have a million Israeli Arabs who are not going to be on your side. A million people in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank who are not going to be on your side. And you're surrounded by a hundred million Arabs who are not going to be on your side. Are you going to win? Or are you going to lose? What do you do? Military miscalculations have been a determinative factor in world history and Jewish history. Hoshev and Elah made a military miscalculation which 
destroyed 10 twelfths of Jewish people. He decides to align himself with Egypt and the power of Egypt at that point in time of Shomron, Hoshab el we can't survive against Ashur. So therefore he refused to pay tribute as he paid. What happens? He's taken as captive by the king. How dare you do this against me? He's put in prison. And at that point, the king, Shaman Esed, goes against the entire land, and he sieges the city for three years, and in the of the end of the entire story, what happens to the ten twelfths northern kingdom of Israel? Destroyed, devastated. Question. Do these ten twelfths of the Jewish people, ten twelfths, ten tribes, ever resurrect? Never. Never resurrect. So the destruction is total and absolute. Now what can raise the question? Did he miscalculate or not? Remember, parenthetically again, the Hanam Zakai was faced with the exact same decision in about two tragedies later, which we'll get to in a few moments. And what does he say? Goes to the Emperor of Rome and says, take the city of Yudushalayim. Imagine, he's giving over the city of Yudushalayim to a pagan emperor. Yet what does he want in return? Yavne v'achamea. Give me a small village called Yavne and its rabbinical leadership. That's all I want. And no war, no battle, no death. If you said that today, give up Yerushalayim for peace. Now there's nobody in this room that would agree with that statement. Nobody would give up Yerushalayim even for peace, I imagine. It's something that does not emerge from a 21st century Jewish's mind or mouth. Impossible. We would rather go to war and maybe lose everything than lose Yerushalayim. I certainly understand that sentiment. But on the other hand, I have to read the Gemara which tells us about Rabbi Yohanan Zakai who says, I will give you Yerushalayim, you give me Yahya and take that statement very seriously. Read it carefully and see, does it apply to today's day and age or not? Difficult question. I don't know that anybody could answer that question. Maybe no. But it certainly should be remembered as a possible option. But no, let's say no. We're not going to say yes to that question. When we think about Rabbi Muhammad Zakai as an incredible personality, at the end, Judaism survived because he made a decision. Not easy. Political leadership is fraught with burdens that affect history in a way that one can barely imagine. So what happens over here, at this point in time, 722, before the common era, 1012 Jewish people are exiled, destroyed, devastated, never to be resurrected. They were sprinkled throughout the Assyrian Empire, a family here, a family there, a family here, a family there, mid the language, all done intentionally by the king of Assyria. One of the military innovations of Shaman Esed V was divide and conquer. What does that mean? I conquer a state. I exile population. But I don't exile them in total as a group. Then they may rebel against me. I separate them and spread them out. I don't know his language. I'm not going to trust him very well. I can't even speak to him. It takes me five to learn the language. Do I trust him or not? If I don't trust him, I cannot rebel against the king. Assyria maintained an empire which was vast and extraordinary for a period of three to four hundred years. Amazing. From the ninth, 10th, 9th century 
all the way to 612 before the common era. Defeated at the end, interesting, by Babel. Amazing. But it was a brilliant, a brilliant empire. Especially Shamanites the fifth was brilliant as a military strategist. Amazing personality on historical scene. So now that I've separated the Jews throughout the entire empire, I'm not afraid of the Jewish people. They cannot rebel against me, and indeed they don't. Rather, what do they do? They assimilate it. End story for 1012 of the Jewish empire. First tragedy. There is dislocation, geographic dislocation, as well as a change in what critical factor? Self-perception as a Jew. When there's a change in self-perception, you've been so devastated by the events that took place, I no longer think of myself as God's chosen people. I'm wandering the face of the earth. I'm God's chosen people. That kind of dislocation, psychological dislocation, means it's over for you. By contrast, parenthetically, during the Crusades, we had suffered greatly. But a Jew did not see the Crusades as proof of God's displeasure, but rather he said it as a proof of how we're going to survive, because it's proof that the Christians are only animals. Because only a person that can go and rape a woman and burn a bill to death, but no reason at all, that they're not the chosen people, but I am. My persecution had proven to me in the Middle Ages that I'm chosen and you're not. Look at your behavior. You think God wants you to do this? Christian said, yes, God wants you to do this. Christian said, but we were sure that it was not. So that proved us. Okay, good. But at this point in time, the change in Jewish self-perception was critical. Parenthetically as well, during the Holocaust, there of course was tremendous geographic dislocation. Was there a change in Jewish self-perception? Interesting question. Get to it in a minute. So our first great Galut, the first devastating crisis that afflicted the Jewish people was in 722 before the Common Era, done by the Assyrians, by Ashur, Mesopotamia, fantastic empire, had exiled 10, 12 Jewish people, never to recover. If you look at verse 7, you have an explanation. The Navi will never simply describe an event without explaining the theology behind the event. And here you're going to have what's called theodicy. Theodicy means justification of God's ways. Here that he's going to go out of his way to explain why this took place, and of course it boils down to one very, very, very clear-cut principle. If you violate the covenant that has been, exactly, that has been contracted between the Jewish people and God himself, you're going to be exiled. A break in the covenant. You break the covenant, it's over for you as a people, on a national level. So he says in verse 8, Those Jews had gone the pagan way, that God had dispossessed of the land of Israel. They searched after Jewish people and said things about God that were not so. so. Now what did they say about God that wasn't so, that brought about their exile? What could a person say about God that's going to end the story in their relationship? Think of it in terms of a husband and a wife relationship. The Hosea, the Nabi Hosea, describes the relationship between God and the Jewish people as a husband and a wife. Now, those of you who are married, I don't want you to ask this question, but think about it. What could your wife tell you that is so devastating that you explode? 
Okay, now, is I don't need you, or I cheated upon you, or I'm leaving, is that going to make you explode? Now, wait, let's listen, think about it. I'm not going to speak personally now, but I understand that if a man says, I have done, I've dealt with this before, where a man has cheated on his wife or walked with his husband, and in that case, the husband has not said, I'm going to leave you. It does not explode at that. Some do. Many don't. Or I don't need you. This is hurt, but not explosion. I'm looking for that kind of a statement where the intent is so powerful that the reaction is one of instant, of breaking apart of the relationship. The answer is to be found in the book of Yirmiyahu, chapter 7. We should be aware of this pasuk. Now look at verse 16, first of all. Have you ever found any other place in Navi where this ever happened? Don't pray for this people. The Jews sin with the golden calf. Does God say, don't pray for them? No, to the contrary. Jews sin the Hedim Don't pray, never. Where does God say to the Jewish, to the, to the Navi, don't pray for them, don't lift up your voice with pleading? I'm not, I don't care what you say, it's over. Why is it over? Is it only the content? Let's say your wife goes ahead and spends all your money with a credit card. Is that going to make it over? Close, maybe. <laughs> okay, but not that close. Something worse than that. What's worse than that is we look ahead. Verse 31. What did Jews do? Verse 31, chapter 7. They built altars of drums. Part of the altar had a drum in the valley of the man who's known as Hinnom, which of course you can visit in Yerushalayim now. You could go visit Gehinnom, hell, later to be associated with in rabbinic literature as Gehinnom, which is hell. What did they do? They burnt their children to Avodat Molech in fire. In other words, the arch transgression for Jews would be if you sacrifice, human sacrifice, to the god Molech. God Molech was the name Molech, that was his name, it was human sacrifice. You know this well. You know that, of course, we have archaeologically found the god Molech. We know what he looked like. His real name was Melech, not Molech. Why did they change his name from Melech to Molech? No, to laugh at him. How to laugh at him? What other word in Hebrew has the same nikodot as Molech? Boshet. Molech and Boshet. The shame. Boshet means shame. This deity who asked for child sacrifice is a shame to the Jewish people. His name was changed from Melech to Molech Borshet. Good. His hands were put placed this way. We have the deities. They placed the baby on his hands, rolled downward, and hold in his midsection a fire on his bottom, and the child would scream and run, roll through his midsection and be burnt. What was the point of having drums there, Tophet, the way some commentaries say? Tophet drum? To drown out the screams of the, of the child. Now, all of that is horrifying. It's the arch transgression. Right? Good. But something worse than that. What's worse than that? Asher lo tiviti. Asher that I, who's the I over here? God did not command. God says, I never thought of this. So what was going on at that time? The people thought, in fact, that Hashem wanted child sacrifice. So now you have a scenario where they have imp imputed to God pagan values. 
meaning that they were so confused that line between what is Hashem and what is paganism was crossed. It's one thing if your wife cheats on you. But it's worse if your wife says, I'm cheating on you because you cheated on me. Me! I don't do that. You did, you did, you did. So she attributed to you her own transgression in order to do what? To get away with it. But, I'll go further and say that here they imputed to Hashem that God wants, they said God wants child sacrifice. Hashem, the God of forefathers, the Sabbath, and all that, He wants child sacrifice. And God says, Hashem Otiviti, I never commanded that, were you crazy, you people? I would never do that. Those Jews indeed believed sincerely that Hashem wanted child sacrifice, that Hashem wanted this innocent babe to be burnt on that altar of Molech. They thought Hashem really wanted that. Very good question, but not hard to understand. You're surrounded by a sea of paganism. You're not very literate. You're not very well read. Nobody read books. There was no books in those days. You had a Navi, a single solitary personality, who was screaming against all of this, and you had multiple other Nevi'im who are saying, yes, do it, God wants it. Peer pressure. You ever hear the word peer pressure? You know how many kids I know in 8th grade and 10th grade that smoke? I can't, why do you smoke? You get cancer when you smoke. What are you, stupid? I tell them. What do they tell me? Everybody does it. The power of peer pressure is extraordinary. But not only on the adolescent level. They tell me, oh, they're only kids they don't know better. And it drives me crazy. Because they can get sick and die because they're smoking at that point and they're stupid. What do I do about it? I announce it. I speak about it. I tell them they have to do peer pressure. Not only that, one of the most famous experiments in psychology. You must know about this. The famous Stanley Milgram experiment. What was the experiment? Yes, what happened in that context was we want to see how evil a human being can be. An average human being. Average person. Take Charlie Samach. How evil is Charlie Samach? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to take Charles Samach and we're going to put him in a room. And he's going to be sitting in front of a board. And he's going to be asked, the person on the other side of the mirror, a question. And he's going to be told by a physician, a man dressed in a white coat, the scientist, that I want you to press that button every time he gives you a wrong answer. He asks a question, and of course he presses the button, the man screams, 20 volts. 20 volts, 9 volts, 2 double A bat, not, not so bad. Another question, a third, a fourth. He keeps giving him volts. 9, 20, 30, 40. The man starts screaming at 60. Stop, I can't stop the experiment. He goes on. The, the scientist, the physician says, do more. He's supposed to do more. 1951. 90, 120. It's lethal now. You're killing me, you're killing me. He goes on and on and on. Now, is he unusual or is he average, typical? He's average or typical. The average person, because of the peer pressure of that image, authority figure, told him, press the button, he pressed till he killed the person. The experiment was done in Newport, Rhode Island, one, then it was done at Yale University. Because he figured, people that go to Yale will be smarter. Were they smarter? Exact same percentages. Peer pressure, authoritative voices, prophets say, go further, keep on going further. It's what makes history happen. Because there was no hope at that point. God has a vision. God has a goal. And if you have undermined that goal to that point, 
where you now impute to God paganism, there's no hope any longer. In other words, what's the message of the Bible? There are times when society can, se can self-destruct. The Mabul. There's no hope for them any longer. They created the transgression of Hamas. Not that we discuss what, what is right now. Hamas means there's no hope for you as a society. You have to be destroyed. Sodom HaMorah. When you're that evil, you're destroyed. I can't do anything about it, God says. I can't allow evil to run rampant. I can't allow Hitler's life to go a thousand years. He has to be destroyed. I can't even allow communism to go beyond its 50 years or 60 or 70 years. It has to be destroyed. So there's a certain balance that we don't know perfectly well of good and evil that God's willing to tolerate X amount of evil on the national or even local level. And then, and then at that point, God simply says, there's no hope any longer and it has to be punished. The pagans did not have an obligation of serving God. They could be pagans. They had seven Dolachite commandments. Be decent human beings. Now, they may not have been. And in fact, if you look at the Navi Amos, which we'll get to in a few moments, he does, in fact, castigate, criticize, and speak of destruction to the pagan nations who violated Shosunoch canons of morality. Okay, so they had to pay their price. God, who is the God of all, had, yes, in fact, punished the pagans as well. But Jews have a more heightened sensitivity and awareness. So once they got to the point of and there's no hope for the Jews any longer, then this people has to be destroyed. When you impute to God paganism, because you're so mesmerized by the phenomenon of paganism. Now, interestingly enough, most of us here think paganism is silly, foolish, and stupid. Right? Can anybody give me a modern version of paganism? Cult is good. Materialism is too abstract. I'm not going to call Christianity pagan. Now I'm living in a Christian country with 260 million Christians. Nazism. Nazism was pagan. You have your Fuhrer, you have your leader, you have him controlling people. Astounding. To the point of life and death, did, was Hitler able to get a wonderful, nice... I don't Charlie anymore. He's done. He was still the first barrage. What did he do? He took a doctor, a lawyer, a musician, an artist. Astounding how he was able to create killers out of average people. It's mind-boggling. Not your average peasant way to choose. Everybody's involved. One of the greatest minds of the 20th century is person Martin Heidegger. Brilliant. Extraordinary. His philosophy is studied now 60, 70, 80 years later after his death. He was a Nazi. How did it happen? How he, man who had great thought, how did he become a Nazi? So obviously, if you know what's right, it does not necessarily mean you do what's right. Peer pressure, authority, a whole nation is taken up with the fervor of the cult of Nazism. 60 million Germans, 1 million people in the party, 60 million people in the country became on one level or other Nazis. That's called modern paganism. Astounding. So what happens? How do you combat it? Your mind. You have to always maintain your intelligence to be able to distinguish what's pagan and what's Jewish. Could Judaism become paganism? What do you think? I don't mean becoming paganism in terms of becoming, let's say, let's say pagans, but could we maintain Torah, mitzvot, and still be pagan? Could it happen? Could we miss the message? But even in a contemporary context, 
if we miss the message of what Torah is all about, then we can become pagans as well. You could deify God in a pagan context, and that makes you into a pagan if you paganize Hashem himself. You have the wrong idea about God. You think God is physical, for example, on a trivial level. You're pagan. Paganism is a rampant disease of human nature. It's true. It's human nature. And the whole purpose of Torah, not me saying this, the whole purpose of Torah is to root out paganism where a person deifies his own inclinations, own thoughts, own things, and says, that's what God wants. In Emil Fackenheim's classic work, Judaism Confronts Modern Philosophy, has a wonderful chapter on Nazism as paganism or idolatry as a modern phenomenon. And what really happened over there? It's when the German people as a whole had taken their collective will and attributed it to Hitler and said, you express what we really want. We really want this. You do it. You enunciate it. You announce it. We'll do it. Paganism is really ultimately self-deification. It's when I decide what I want, and then if I'm really subtle, what do I do? I say, God wants it. Scary. Frightening. Who, these pagans? Yeah, at some point they felt that God would shower them with blessings. Frighteningly enough, one can raise the possibility, which I want right now, is do we have any biblical analog for this? And they used that as a source. I don't want to go into this right now. Good, they didn't read the end of it. Exactly. Exactly that point. As many, as many Jews throughout the Middle Ages, Middle Ages, Jews had the question, do I give my child to the Christians to be raised as a Christian, or do I kill my child? So many Jews said, Hashem wanted Abraham to sacrifice his son, and therefore what? God wants me to give my child, to, the, to kill my child, rather than raise him as a Christian. If you had the choice, what would you do? That's obvious to you? Is there going to be a pagan as a pagan? Okay, so you'll kill your kid rather than raise your kid as a follower of, uh, give me a good pagan religion. Who knows paganism here? You like Buddhism? Hinduism you like? I wish you didn't know so much about paganism. Okay, good. So that's an interesting question. Let's say the Nazis say, I will raise your child. I'm going to kill you, but I'll raise your child. Would you want your child to be raised as a Nazi? So then you kill your child. These are very important questions. But I'm only pointing out over here is that some... I don't know that there's hope. You raise a Nazi country, your child, your child becomes a killer of Jews. But he becomes a Nazi. He's three years old. Three years old, and he goes to Hitler Youth, and he goes to the Hitler School of uh, Finery and Fine Education. He goes to the university. All he learns, day and night, it's Hitler, Hitler, Hitler. Do what Hitler says. I don't know how much free choice you have at that point. Does he, why should he grow up? He's grown up in Germany. What choice do you have at that point? In any case, these are very complex, difficult, moral issues. Paganism in that time was rampant. The authorities, the Nevi'im, people were called Nevi'im. They promoted the paganism. They themselves promoted paganism. Nevi'im Shekin. In fact, in one very interesting pasuk in Yemiyahu Pedic Dalit, I want you to feel the full force of this pasuk. Here, here, Yemiyahu is told, destruction, devastation. Everything's going to be destroyed. 
What's Yimiel's reaction in verse 10? Ba'omar, I said, Aha Adonai Elohim. Oh my God. Achen, indeed. You have led this people astray. Why is Yimiel now blaming God himself for the destruction? Nemod, because Shalom Yelachem. Because Hashem allowed Nevi'eh, check it very good, I want you to that word, the false prophets to exist, who prophesied peace. Nothing's wrong right now. Nevi'im at that point, prior to the point said, everything is fine and wonderful and good. And Yemiah says, no, it's not good. There's corruption in the world. You people are evil. No, he's crazy. He's crazy. So imagine the scenario. Let's say a rabbi comes to the Syrian community and gets him Shadet Tzion, not in my shoe. I'm not letting him in. Comes in Shadet Tzion and says, you people are too materialistic. Your $80,000 weddings, your $100,000 bridges are terrible, horrible. God hates them. And it will rain destruction upon you. And then rise another Syrian rabbi. I won't say who. He says, nah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I have 100000 You pay me half a... How much do you pay your rabbis nowadays? At a wedding. <laughs> Whatever it is. $1,000 a wedding? It's fine. Keep on... You have $100,000 for me, $1,000. I'm 1%. So I won. Right? And then that rabbi is followed by another, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh. Right? This one happened to the only in Brooklyn, right? Sorry, Brooklyn people. And then what happens? Who's going to be followed? Who's going to be listened to? So that's what happened over here. Near the air check-in had said that you people are fine, you're wonderful, you're bringing your, your offerings, you're paying us off all the Nivea Sheket, we're getting our salaries, everything's fine. Because you allowed it to happen. You are... The people themselves, they came How did they get to know? How did they know? Hashem gave them No! How, did the first, how are you going to know which of these two rabbis is right or wrong? People have to distinguish. Right. So if you have the education, the people have to distinguish, and that's ultimately where it comes up. You have the distinction between the Nivea Sheket and the Nivea But it's, he's saying it's not fair to them. It's not there. He didn't know. Hashem, why'd you allow Nebuchadnezzar to prophesy Shalom Yehelachem? Everything's fine. You should have killed those Nebuchadnezzar and have no problem. But what, why did Hashem do that? Because whose responsibility is it to choose right? The gods or yours? The people. So you blew the call, you didn't know what was right from wrong, and you pay a price. The parent has to let the child fall off his bicycle and scrape his knee at some point. Isn't it your question? One second. I think his emotions over here are overwhelming. When you're facing your child being killed, what do you say? God, help me. Do anything. It's your fault. Here's an interesting question. Let's say your child has the opportunity of taking, stealing a test from school. Your choices are, does that ever happen? Yes. Your choices as a parent is let him sink or swim, right, on his own. Make the right moral decision. You tell him, you choose, you make the right moral decision. Or you may say, I'm going to call the principal, don't take it. Take the test, or you have it, return it. I'm telling you. I'm going to tell the principal. Which is the better parent? Tells, choose. Wow. Two ethical philosophers over here battling it out. Very difficult question. Oh, so you want to get away with it? The first time. What about, here's the next question. We actually had a program during the summer called Ethics in Action. We showed a video. It was uh, of ethical, the most prominent thinkers of the of society had raised this question. It was a Harvard lawyer who debated the issue with ten people around the table. Well, they all had all these different options. He says, well, what about this kid, John, 
who cheated and got into Harvard Law School. The father knows about it and can decide. Does he go to Harvard and make $100,000 when he leaves? Or do we not let him do that? We tell the, we tell the, especially he cheated on the, on the, on the LSAT, right? So the people debated it. Says, well, what about now? He's now cheating on his wife. Will you tell the wife? No, they all agreed. It's her problem. What next? His wife is your daughter. Now, this is a straightforward story. It was a brilliant program. And after the program, Rabbi Avadi and myself, we all debated the sides of it. What's right, what's wrong. We were the problem. You remember It's a great program. And we had about 50 people that were just, just, just in an uproar. What's the right and wrong of these issues? So, really, what does Hashem want? Hashem's saying at a certain point, I'm not getting involved over here. I have given you the tools by which to know, discriminate, and understand what I, God, want. It's right here. Right here. I don't want pagans, I don't want child sacrifices. By Yud Head says, I don't want child sacrifice. says it very clearly. You're doing it. Now, if you don't distinguish, discriminate, and know enough, you're going to pay a price for that. So here, Hashem is letting us fall by the wayside because we have to learn our own. So at that point, you tell the child, you raise the child. Time kids in high school already, you want the kid to have developed an ethical sense to the point where he knows what's right and wrong. And as a businessman, same thing. What do you do? Your partner's cheating somebody. I know of a case where the one man allowed the partner to cheat. Hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars of, of an insurance company. At the end, they both paid the price. They both had to go to jail. Sad story. And my friend didn't do anything wrong. It was Eskenazic partner who did it, unfortunately. It's a crazy story. But when do you go? When do you allow a person to make his own ethical decision? What does Aharon try to do? And if so, he starts to stall. Hagashem Nahar. So they, so we have to analyze that very carefully and say that, do they have the wrong concept of God? So even if, correct, alright, good. So one has to, one has to analyze the text and see whether or not God's willing to tolerate a wrong concept as they had then, or whether or not the what was their ideas, and perhaps the answer might be in that context that some people may have thought that's the way you serve God, as we may have thought that's really, I'm worshipping this Egil itself, because that was the deity of Egypt. So you might have had a mixed range of responses. Let's go back to over here. So we see over here that the first Horban of Galut Yud Sheva team, and I want to move a little bit more quickly now, just to go through this, was in 724 the common era. And we saw it in our text. Now the second Hurban that we had, of course, was Hurban by Nishon, 564 the common era, 586, by the Babylonians, complete geographic dislocation, and Jews confused. Because if there's nobody left in Judea, then who's serving God? The Ben Amikdash is destroyed. What does this mean to us? So there is a psychological... Sorry? They, they some, yes, yeah, some Jews run away. Exactly, correct, good. So the, those who remain run away to Egypt. So what do we have now? So there seems to be a change in perception. If you were to study the post-exilic prophets, that means Haggai, Svanyam, Al-Achi, those last three post-exilic prophets, their issues are different than the first prophets. Because the Jews are asking different questions. What's God really want? Imagine, he destroyed his own temple. What does God really want at this point is the question that they raise. So we have Hoban Bayit Nishon, 586. The third great tragedy would be Hurban Bayit Sheni. Seventy years of the common era by the Romans. And you have hundreds of thousands of Jews that are now exiled to Rome as slaves 
who ultimately became, of course, the base for Ashkenazic Jewry. One of the great mysteries of history is how were these 300, 400,000 Jews redeemed so immediately from slavery? Answer? What seems to have been the case is that there must have been, historians speculate, an organized Jewish community in Rome going back 2,000 years who was so wealthy and so powerful that they were able to redeem these Jews almost immediately. That's the George Shibuyim. Jews do it all the time. And therefore that core became the base of Ashkenazic Jewry with the traditions of Israel, as opposed to Sfaradim, who actually had the traditions of Babylonia and Syria all the way into Spain. Okay, so that's interesting. So that Horban by Cheney in 70 has become a devastating blow to Jewish people. Again, Benavidash is destroyed and is a geographic dislocation, and it would seem a change in self-perception as well. What was the change self-perception? For the Jews who remained in that area of the world, we have two interesting statements. One we'll see tomorrow in the class on the, on the, on the Talmudic sources responding to this crisis is one group. And over here as well, these Jews were saying that God no longer has chosen us. And many Jews became Judeo-Christians. Remember, the Christianity is saying exactly that. Obviously, God has not chosen you because your Benedict is destroyed again. And you are now exiled. So therefore, we, we really are the true new Jews, followers of Yeshua. Amnitha, chosen people, was thrown into question right now. What do we do now? Are we still the chosen people or not? We're destroyed again. Then that's the third. The fourth that we point to is the aftermath of the Bar Kokhla revolt. Massive slaughter. Hadrian, the emperor at that point, said, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. They rebelled too many times. 70 to the common era. 118 in Alexandria. Again, 132 to 135. Enough already. They're only a flea on my neck that I'm going to wipe out completely. I will persecute them until there's no longer, and the rabbis were unusually persecuted. That those rabbis were tortured. His skin combed because Hadrian had to get the point across, Jews have to die. Period. It's the end of the story for Jews. I will change, and it's changed the name of Judea to what name? Palestine, which survived for how many years? 2,000 years. I changed the name of Jerusalem to Aila Kapitulana. There's no more Jews allowed. There's no more Jerusalem. It's end. Over. Your Jews are gone. Devastating blow to the Jewish people. That's number four. Number five, we could see as Gerush Sefarad, the Spanish expulsion, 1492. Devastating blow to the Jewish people. 100,000, well, killed 100,000 for Christianity. Why did they convert to Christianity? Because at that point, Medellin was saying Christians are right. What do we think now? We're out of our land for 1,500 years. And we keep telling the Christians, you know something? We're really chosen people. You're chosen? You're, yeah, chosen for what? You're poor, you're impoverished, you're the, gar the, the, the garbage heap. You have nothing. How are you chosen? So he said, wait till next year. Next year happens. Wait till next year. Now, in the year 70, 71, 75, 80, 90, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. Should we wait some more? 500 years? Yeah, wait some more. 700, 800, Now it's a thousand years later. Should we still wait for you Jews to finally rise? Where's your God that's supposed to protect you? The chosen people. Wait some more. We wait 1,200 years, 1,400 years. Finally, by the 1,500 years, we're waiting for God to answer our prayers. Nothing. It's quiet. 
So many Jews convert to Christianity saying, maybe they're right. Where maybe Yeshua really was the Mashiach. How, how do we not know? So the Yerusha Farad was a devastating blow with 100,000 Jews convert to Christianity, 100,000 Jews being, were killed or killed their own children, and 100,000 Jews were left, gone to their own. Some ended up in Syria, as my family did, through Morocco. Some ended up in, um, in Turkey, and some just died. Those who went to Portugal just died. Very difficult situation. That's the fifth that we spoke of. Right. Number six I would call is Gizot Tahfatat, which is where over a three-year period of time, Jews were slaughtered, women were raped. The evil of Khamenei is unparalleled in that period of time. One of the shockingest experiences in my life is when we had gone to Russia, and I had learned, of course, Jewish history, that Khamenei was a horrible human being, evil, and what he had done to the Jews, and we should have been involved. It was really a peasant uprising against the aristocracy. Trouble was the Jews were the middlemen. Unfortunately, they were the bankers in between the aristocracy who loaned the money to the peasants. So he just simply revolted against the Jews. They killed them. Said hundreds and thousands, the number given in Marx and Goes is 300,000 Jews were slaughtered. Just slaughtered. Not with guns, but with bayonets, with, uh, what do you call it, with, the, Machete. with machetes, just chopped apart. Incredible hatred, antagonism, and semitism. And then finally we come to the Holocaust, of course, which is number seven. Now, even in the Holocaust, it's interesting because during the Holocaust, people raise the question, why didn't Pope Pius XII say anything? Answer is very simple. The Holocaust is simply the culmination of Christian history. It's what they've been saying all along. If you deny Yeshu, what are you going to happen to you? You're damned eternally. You're a son of Satan. You're, you're demonic. You're evil. This has to happen. Christian theology culminated in the Holocaust. If he was a good thinker and a good Christian theologian and he understood his Bible, what did he say to himself? The stupid Jews, this is what happens when you deny Yeshu. He believed in it strongly and powerfully. The Holocaust was simply an expression of what happens to Jews who deny Yeshu. Simple, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so that's, why, that's why Pope John Paul II is saying we made a mistake. We have an obligation of doing that before we condemn the Pope. We have to raise the question, what was it like? Could he have done more? But also, he's a moral authority, quote, the moral authority of the world. What should he have said? What should he do? Pope John XXIII saved Jewish lives and has to be praised because he went against the stream and against Christian theology. That's what I mean about when Christianity becomes paganism. is when you allow your theology to dictate what human sense, good sense, and human right and wrong dictates. Pope John, Pope John XXIII says, Jews should not be dying now this way, even though they're Jews. I'm going to save Jewish children and return them to their parents. And what made him say that? It's not Christian theology, because I could find numerous places in the New Testament which says, no, kill, damn the Jews. You read Tertullian, you read Luther, wherever you want to read the Christian tradition, you're going to find somebody that says, damn the Jews. He says, no, 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 that, that, that doesn't go right. What made Pope John XXIII save Jews, and Pope John Paul II also, he was good to the Jews. 1969-1962-63, he was an extraordinary prophet. He's the one that set in, in, line, uh, set in motion Vatican II, which made great pronouncements for the Jewish people, extraordinarily so. He and the question, fast. and he, he died, died fast. fast. The question is, how did he die so fast? Right. There are those who will say that he was assassinated by the inside, I'm not saying it's true, by the church, because his, his re revolutionary right. personality was too radical, too liberal. Right. So, so follow your black and white theology without using human reason and kindness and goodness, what's the basic message? 
What is Christianity's basic message? Kill the Jews? Or we should save the Jews? For whatever reason it is. So they had to think deeply. I think Pope Pius XII kept the wrong answer, and Pope John XXIII kept the right answer. And with the same thing. Would I, if I had the opportunity of seeing Christians killed, would I save a Christian? Sir, of course I save a Christian. I don't know about you, but I, you're from Boston, I don't know about you. I would save a Christian. What if I How about you a Nazi? If you, if you save that one, I'll kill your whole family. He'll kill my whole family? Mm -hmm. If I save that one, and it's a guaranteed yeah, or is it? That's like a Nazi. Okay, good. So you're making the question much more difficult. In that particular no, case. It's true. It's not rationalization. Yeah, that's part of it. And then that makes it much more difficult. And yet, the image of those five to 7,000 Polish people that say, 7,000, what are we talking about? But say Jewish people, right, is so inspiring, or King Christian X of, uh, of Denmark was so inspiring, how would I be less than that? How would I be less than that? Exactly. So how'd I, be, I don't want to be less than that. So maybe I would. I don't know. It's a difficult question. Okay, so there, here you have your seven tragedies. Right? Seven tragedies. Good. So now, we've discussed already the criteria of why I consider to be tragedies. It was the massacre of hundreds of thousands of Jews in each case. There was a geographic dislocation in each case. There was a change in our self-identity. And regarding the Holocaust itself, it's interesting to note that the chief rabbi of Italy, Zolti, converted to Christianity after the Holocaust. Why did he do that? Why did he convert to Christianity? Now, I'm sure there's a complex reason for it, and one has to really analyze it very well. But there were other Jews as well who wanted to have nothing to do with Judaism. How can I be a Jew in the afterlife? Well, I want to raise my kids as a Jew. Look what they did to the Jews. I don't want to raise my kids as Jews. So many Jews just simply, either quietly or loudly, simply melted into the framework and said, I can't be Jewish any longer. Now, what saved Jewish self-perception? Israel. Exactly. One of the extraordinary features of the 20th century is that we reached a lowest point in 2,000 years and the highest point in 2,000 years. And they're related, obviously, on some political, if not theological level. In which case, to say that Israel became, for us, a saving source, Psychologically, yes, it's true. How many hundreds of that Jews made Aliyah? The fact that Jews could lift their face and say, I'm a Jew and proud of it, certainly, after 67, made a great change. Good. But, but you don't know that post-Holocaust, which was the most, which, is, which one can argue was the most massive evil that has stricken us, in terms of numbers, Joseph tells there were six million Jews at that point in time. So I don't know that six, six million weren't killed. There were two million left. So maybe three to four million were killed. Yeah, Here we have six million. No, I'm saying that we needed something to raise our spirits. There was a mass demoralization. The question is, how do Jews perceive themselves in the aftermath of the Medan of Dash or here? Confused? Determined not to be Jewish? So I'm not certainly not saying that, God forbid, if there was a state of Israel, that we'd not still be Jews around. I'm saying that I think the state of Israel helped us regain a balance. It might have taken us a few years before we made, made it. Maybe made us Sure. There's a need when we face these massive, difficult situations to respond. Rabbis have to respond. The thinkers have to respond. Those people who have to create a theology which is able to absorb the tragedy, the crisis, explain it in one way or another in order to get people resurrected. Now, parenthetically, it's the same role of the rabbi when he faces a person, God forbid, who's lost a parent, or a child, or a sibling. What's the role of the rabbi at that period of time? He has to serve as counselor.
The role of Rabbi Puri is to console, and more than console. Console is almost passive. It's to bring him back, resurrect. It's almost as if, it's so difficult to talk about, that the rabbi in that particular situation has to try to absorb with that person, to empathize so profoundly with the person, is able to serve as an inspiration to that person to live life further. Live life more. We can understand how a person who loses, God forbid, a parent, whatever it may be, either tragically or not, even naturally, it's a massive dislocation for the person himself. Or even more so, if a person, God forbid, loses a child. How do you live life beyond, you know, those of us who have children? No. What do we do? What do we say? And the rabbi has to really be heroic in that way, and able to empathize, absorb the pain, and somehow inspire people to live more so. That's your job. That's what rabbi has to do. So too, when the Jewish people as a whole are facing these massive, massive catastrophes, whether it's Orban Bayezishon, or Bayezheni, or hydratic persecutions, or the Holocaust, or Gilusifarad, the rabbis have to respond. I don't want us to study the rabbinic writings. What did the rabbis say in order to respond to this particular situation? What did they do? How did they help us cope with this massive amount of evil? Now, what we want to do is raise this question and only just begin to speak about it. We'll continue tomorrow morning um, a little bit more from the biblical sources here. We have to study the biblical and rabbinic sources and then try to come up with a almost a theology of response. What do you say when somebody individually or Am Yisrael collectively faces a tragedy? That's what the obligation of the rabbis is facing that. What does a rabbi do when he's facing a Holocaust surviving family? What do you say? In 1944, 1945, 1950, it's easier, 1955, maybe even easier. What does he say if post-67, that's easy to come up with theology of victory, that's no problem. 82 is a little bit more difficult. 85 makes it perhaps even more difficult. But it's only individual, it's not collective, it's not, not national. What your question would be, if God forbid, God forbid, what happens if this state of Israel doesn't work out? Anybody foresee that? Or are we so secure, we know for sure Israel's going to survive? Is, is, is there any guarantees? No guarantees. There's no guarantees militarily, we agree, and perhaps we might even be bold enough to say that theologically and religiously there are no guarantees. What does that mean? What's the message of Tanakh about the state of Israel? If you don't get the message of what Tanakh is all about, there's a certain sanctity to the state and land of Israel. If you don't get that message, we have porno shops and we have X-rated movies and we have all that in Yerushalayim, couldn't happen again. That's a theological question of extraordinary significance. If Jews hate each other in the streets of Yerushalayim, Heloni and Haredi and all in between, that's so scary. That means we didn't get the message. But at what point does God say, look, you people don't get the message, and there's only one alternative at this point. It's exile again. And then what happens? Then the rabbis have the obligation once again of not giving up unless they feel the covenant is over. There were those Jews who 2,000 years ago, at the Chorban Bayekishon, what did they say? The covenant is over. It didn't happen. It's, not, it's no longer. You blew the call. God has now forsaken the Jewish people because they didn't get the message after, after then. Now, it's 2,000 years later. 
And now I've given you the state again. All kinds of massive miracles in a wonderful, extraordinary situation. Now what's going on? We have the liberals, we have the leftists, we have the rights, we have people killing each other. Could you imagine what a crime it was to kill Rabin? Scary. Where, what do you do? To save the land of Israel, I've killed a human being. Is that the right message? Is that what God wants of us? Raise the question, halakhically. Can I go kill the prime minister of Israel to save the land itself? Is that not perhaps a paganization of the land? Saying the land is of a higher value than a human being? Those are profound questions. You have to raise them. What's more important? And paganism is when I take something of limited, finite value, and I say it's absolute. What is the absolute value in Torah itself? Is it not human life? Anybody disagree with that statement? But a yeshiva student would have to say misguided, learned the wrong message, says no. The absolute value is land. And if this man is giving away the land, I must kill him. It's a frightening conclusion that the best and brightest produced by the Israel yeshiva system did something like this. Very frightening, very upsetting, very painful. So we have to raise those questions. What's the theology if, God forbid, we don't make the right call? It's in our hands. God is saying, the question before, why did God allow the Jews to, to, to be destroyed? It's in your hands. At a certain point, the parent says to the child, it's your fault to carry or to fumble or to lose. You must make the right decision. Enormous responsibility for the leadership of Israel. Make the right decision. Study the sources. It's right here. Make the wrong decision, you pay a price. That's what being human is all about. That's what your responsibility is called. You say the wrong thing to your wife, you get thrown out of the house, or vice versa. You pay a price for your actions. There's no more for us to teach our children. You pay a price for your actions. Up to a certain point, we're going to cover for you. When you're 8, 9, 10, 12, 15, 18, 19, 20, 21, well, we as parents will cover for you. To a certain point, take responsibility. That's what you have to do. God says the same thing. You have the land now, you're at this point in time, do it. Make the right decision. You don't have the right decision, you pay the price. And then the rabbis either say, it happens, God forbid, again, that it's over, and some will say that it's over, can't happen, we just can't survive any longer. Some will be so demoralized, de-energized, they won't know how to go on. Because how can it happen again? We believe in so strongly, this is Yimot HaMashiach. We said it a hundred times. This is redemption. And now we're thrown back again, exiled again? No energy. You just can't go on. And there will be those rabbis and those people who will say that we'll dust ourselves off, we'll stand up tall again, and we'll march forward. That will happen. Those who study the Nevi'im, those who study the Nevi'im profoundly will have the third option, I believe. If we looked at, just for one moment, look at Amos. And Amos I choose, and this is my last point, I know you're all tired, I know you want to go home, I don't blame you. Look at Amos. Hoshea Yoel Amos, we should know this by heart. The order of Nevi'im. Hoshea Yoel Amos, the third of the Nevi'im of the twelve prophets. My children in school have to know this by heart. Where in my house? They would never ask me where is Amos. So though you're an important anesthesiologist, take out three minutes and memorize the order of Siddhi Asad. And he knew that one anyway. So you can use my anesthesiologist from now on. Good. Hoshea Amos, Pedicet. Now why do I choose Hoshea? Why is he my person to choose to respond to tragedy? 
Amos. Amos, Perikel. Why do we choose Amos? Amos is the first of the literary, thank you, Jaime, lecture here, first of the literary prophets. Prior to Amos, there were no literary prophets. The first Navi, after Moshe Rabbeinu, to write down his prophecies. He's known as the class, one of the classical prophets. He came afterwards. He's the first. When did he prophesy? Those who left. When did he prophesy? How could you not know what Amos prophesied? Answer. A massive earthquake shook Judea in the year 750 before the common era. He prophesied in 752 before the common era. Two years before the great tragic earthquake. Which remember is supposed to happen again within the next hundred years. God forbid. Right? He prophesied. He's the one that experienced firsthand the first destruction. So he's the one. He's the one that has to now come up with the answers. Because the first time it happened, the first mass destruction of Galut Yuchivatim, 722, he's the Navi. He predicts it. He tells them, you're corrupt, you're evil, change your ways. They don't. And they're going to be destroyed. So what does Amor say? In chapter 9, towards the end, right towards the end, after pages and pages and pages of devastating condemnation and indictment of the Jewish people. Towards the very end, verse 8, first of all. Now, verse 7 is interesting. Because verse 7 says, You are like the blacks of Ethiopia, Jews. You have no great distinction. When you are evil, when you are corrupt, this is Amos chapter 9, Pasuk, Seven and a half. When you are evil and corrupt, they're the same as all others. No, 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 we're different, the Jews say. You took us out of Egypt. So he says to them, one second, oh, I took the Jews out of Egypt, so we're different. No, 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 no. I took the Philistine from Kaftor and Ramekir. I do this all the time. I redeem people all the time. I redeem the Philistine from Kaftor. I redeem Aram Ramekir. So you're no different. If you paganize, you're corrupt, you're sinful, you're evil. You're the same as all else. God's eyes are now directed toward this evil kingdom. 720, this is 754, come here. I will destroy it from the ground up. However, I will not destroy the total Bet Yaakov. There will always be what's known as Sherit Pereta, a saving remnant. The strength is to be found in God's promise, that God has promised there will always be Jews left. God commands, I will shake, I will ship all those Jews that have gone through all of the Goyim, I will shift them, what's when you shift what happens? You'll, it's a, it's a, you're left with something good, exactly. I will shift, I will shake, and I'll be left with something pure. One of the purposes of the punishment here is, to purify. You become paganized, you become confused, do you learn the lesson of punishment? That's what he wants over here. So he says to us over here, I will shift and I will shake them. As you shake in a sifter, the rock will not fall, but yes, there will be death and destruction, whoever has been transgressing. On that day, but, on that day, I will raise the sukkah of David and Ophelet. Now, raise the question, which we won't, when the Jews come back, 
raise the interesting question, which I want to answer right now. We refer to the Messianic era when God says, I will raise the Sukkah. Why is it a Sukkah? Why is it? It seems to be very temporary, very frail. Of King David. Why King David? Because of Mashiach, good? Then it's fallen. I will raise it up, God says. Because God gave it to him. I will reconstruct all of that which is broken. I will rebuild it. So ultimately the Jewish people shall inherit the rest of Edom and all of those pagan nations. I will do all of that. So the notion that there always be, will be a God's promise to raise the fallen Jewish people is that which gives a person and a rabbi and a leader hope. That whatever happens, the first lesson that one has to absorb is that there's hope. A Jew is not allowed, though what he may have experienced, either personally or collectively, to ever give up hope. This ironclad promise is what at least enabled other Jews, not the ten northern tribes. They didn't believe Amos. He was only a simple shepherd. What did he know? But other Jews were able to read the Navi Amos, and whenever they were at the lowest point of believing in God's promise, after the hundreds and thousands of years of promise, still know, still know the Jew read Amos Perekhet and said, there's hope. So as long as that there is that modicum of hope, or that promise of hope, or that vision of hope, then always we will ultimately be able to believe in the future. God says, I will bring back my people from captivity, and they will build their destroyed cities, and they will live and they will plant their vineyards, and they will drink the grapes, they will make gardens, and they will eat the fruits of those gardens. I will plant them on their, in their land, and they will no longer ever be thrown out from the land that I have given them. So says God. As eternal as God is, so too is the promise of Hashem to the Jewish people. And now those lines themselves is what gives a tremendous amount of hope. That's how one has to, first of all, respond to tragedy. Simply by believing in the promise of the Navi Amos. Thank you.